Adam Driver is in Milan, the Pile Driver is in Turin. One is getting Gucci, but Juventus are getting just embarrassed. We couldn't come up with a love rhyme with Gucci, but as always, we are the Anglo-Italian pod. We welcome you to the show, and I'm Tommaso, and you can find us on Instagram at Anglo-Italian pod. And I'm Rory, you can find us on Twitter at Italian Anglo pod. Tommy, how's your week been? It's been good, just kind of bummed by the fact that we couldn't find a rhyme with Gucci to highlight the fact that Juventus got a terrible free kick against in this week's Champions League action. But besides that, I'm doing just grand. Rory, are you nervous for tonight's game against Olympiacos? We always have the capacity to absolutely shaft ourselves, so I am pretty nervous about it, especially with the North London derby coming up this weekend. I think we will be discussing it as much as I can dare to talk about it. If you had to guess a goal scorer tonight for Arsenal, name on the score sheet, go. I'm going to say Martin Odegaard gets his first goal for the club. All right, quite a bold statement. We'll see if that's true or not. We have an episode full of things to talk about. We're going to start from this week's Champions League action. We'll move on to all of these weekends. Um, action in the top five leagues. So we'll go to Turkey, Spain, Germany, France, Italy, and of course, England. And then for our weekly topic, we have insane UCL comebacks. We will go all the way back to the 2003-2004 season. And then we will also talk about Napoli, Chelsea, and Barcelona, Roma. And of course, you will also have a chance to test your footballing knowledge thanks to the Who Am I quiz. But we're also launching a new challenge for you listeners, and that challenge is called hashtag tell a friend. Basically, if you enjoy our pod, if you've been listening steadily week in and week out, or even if you're listening now for the first time and you like it, why don't you pick up your phone, text your friend, and be like, dude, listen to this thing. I think you might enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. I think any podcast I have ever listened to has been recommended from a friend. So all we're asking is just annoy one friend once a week. Just say, hey, check out these absolute legends. It's not a complete waste of time. You might even enjoy it. Exactly. We remind you that we are also live on Twitch every Monday from 9 to 10 p.m. We have quite a few guests coming on and uh, it's just fun to review football together live with a camera on. The interaction is always great and we want to thank you as always for the support that you've given us so far. But it's time to jump to the quiz. Rory, are you ready? Let's go! And here we are for our weekly Who Am I quiz. Rory, how are you feeling? I am good. I feel like last week you didn't get it. The week before I got it. Maybe I can string together a couple of results and turn this club around. Which club? What club are you? Um, I don't know. Rory FC? I, I can't think of a pun quick enough. Yeah, let's just go for Rory FC. There we go. Nice. So Brisbane, you... Brisbane, Rory FC. There you go. There's a football pun for you. It's the best I could do. I, I didn't get it. Can you explain it, please? <laughs> oh, do I have to explain the terrible joke now? Now you have to. The explain Australian the team is Brisbane Raw, 
So I said Brisbane Rory FC. It's very clever. It's very clever. Wow. All right. Yeah. Good. So before I remind our listeners and our new listeners the rules of the game, we are recording on a Thursday night and the Europa League is happening right now. We are not watching the games, but we know that there was a controversial decision at Old Trafford and the rule, a goal was ruled outside for AC Milan. So the results are still nil-nil for all the teams playing, except Slavia Prague, who are winning 1-0 to the Rangers. Are they drunk Mm. still, you think? I think quite possibly. (laughs) Judging that video of Kamar Roof's jaw, I'm pretty sure it'll take him a few days to to come down from that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was incredible. But so, as the Europa League unfolds before our eyes, let's remind our listeners the rules of the game. I'm going to be impersonating a footballer, and I'm going to give Rory some hints. For example, the club that I've played for the shortest, three notable players that I've played with in chronological order, how many career goals I have, and how many international caps and goals I have. So, Rory, if you're ready, I shall start. I am ready. Notes app is open. Let's go. Let's go. So, the club I've played for the shortest are the Mighty Foxes, Leicester City Football Club. Yeah, let's start from your home country. Players that I've played with in chronological order, you are going to love one of them. Sinisa <laughs> Mihailovic, Juan Sebastian Veron, and are you ready? Robbie ready. Savage. Robbie Savage. Wait, right, so Mihailovic, Savage, uh, Savage, who also played for Kral Alexandra. Who was after Mihailovic? Uh, Juan Sebastian Veron. Veron and um, Robbie Savage. Savage. Yeah. He's in fine company there. He possibly doesn't deserve to be in that company. But... <laughs> Good old Sav. Yeah. National team caps and goals, 36 appearances and only four goals. Okay. And total career goals, 205. Okay, I really thought I knew who it was, and now that has thrown me out a little bit. So guide us through your thinking. What what are you thinking of, more or less? Who are you thinking of? Well, Mihailovic, I think of Lazio. Mm-hmm. Veron, I think of, well, United, Inter, Lazio. Mm-hmm. And Savage was at Leicester City. And... Birmingham and mm. Derby, but it's none of them, is it? So I'm going to say that that's the Leicester link. Okay. With Savage. They're in chronological order as well, eh? No, it can't yeah. be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Savage, it can't be at Leicester then, because Savage was at Leicester after Veron had left United. Was he? <laughs> this is the messiest thing ever. Right. I think I know who it is, but that 205 goals is kind of throwing me out a bit. What, what position does this player play in? I think he's a midfielder. What nationality are you thinking? I think he's South American. 
All right, we shall see. So right now we're going to jump on the Euro Review blimp to take you across Europe's footballing action. Then there will be our weekly topic dedicated to incredible and quite forgotten comebacks in the UCL. And after that, there will be the answer to the quiz. Remember that Rory will have three guesses he available and after those three, I will give the correct answer in case he hasn't gotten it. Rory, quite some time to think about it. Shall we jump on the blimp? Let's get in the blimp. Up, up and away. Let's do it. And here we are in the Euro Review blimp, ready to review all of this week's footballing action, which was mainly UEFA Champions League, but also Atletico Madrid played their game in hand, and so did Man City. Rory, what was your favorite fixture of this Champions League week? Oh, the which games did I enjoy the most? I think I really enjoyed Dortmund Sevilla because it all went a bit mental for a bit. Um, but Barcelona PSG was also weirdly disappointing and inspiring from a Barcelona point of view. So I think that was an interesting game as well. Tommy, which game, which game did you enjoy? I, I assume it was Juve getting, um, getting knocked out by Porto, but maybe I you'll was, surprise me. I was really, so if you are, uh, if you listen to the pod, you will know that my biggest wish for teams like Juventus and AC Milan in the European competitions was to advance until the final and then eventually lose the final but advance always in extra time and so my dream almost came true with Juventus and but when they got eliminated so a part of me was supposed to be sad because now they can focus only on Serie A but man there is something that goes beyond when Juventus are eliminated from the Champions League it's like I don't know you fall asleep instantly when you go to bed with a smile on your face and you're like, once again, they blew it. And they will be remembered as the team who was not able to win a Champions League with Cristiano Ronaldo. The only team ever since Sporting Lisbona. That's incredible. I love it. That is but, a very good point. That is a very good point. let's start with Dortmund Sevilla, where Haaland <laughs> scored his 20th UCL goal in only 14 games. The game ended 2-2 with a brace both from Alan and from Anne Nisri. I feel like Dortmund were playing a very dangerous game at the end of that, that fixture. Yeah, they were definitely like... Because we all know Sevilla have got a bit of fight in them. Um, and Dortmund started the game so well with Holland obviously um, scoring both, uh, scoring his first in the 35th minute. And in the first half, Dortmund really did look comfortable. Sevilla looked a bit lost. And then as the game went on, Sevilla started getting into it. But Dortmund weren't really... I couldn't decide if they were sitting too deep or they were still attacking. I couldn't really decide. And I think they couldn't decide either. And that's where Sevilla started to get their chances. But the main kind of drama came in the first half. And this is all around the penalty. So I don't know if you saw this, Tommy, but it was... Obviously, an English referee, um, Anthony Taylor, making absolutely bizarre decisions as he gave... A penalty to Dortmund. No, so wait. <laughs> Holland scored a goal. He then disallowed the goal for a foul that happened on Holland five minutes earlier. Holland five minutes? Then, well, it felt like five minutes. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. But Holland then took the penalty, missed it. The game carried on. Play continued. 
Then the referee called it back again for Holland to take the penalty again, at which point he scores. And now, the first time that his penalty got saved, you 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 actually told me about the goalkeeper mocking Haaland, and right after so Haaland scored the goal, funny. he went back to daunt the goalkeeper. And when you hear what he said, it was the most English response ever. He just went unlucky, right? which is fucking brilliant. Um, yeah. So, and then after the game, when the journalist asked him, "What did you say?" He said, "Oh, I'm not going to repeat it, but I just said what the goalkeeper said to me when I missed." Uh, but the microphones picked it up. He is, I absolutely, I'm just in love with Holland. He's not only as a footballer, like we can get onto that, but the fact that he actually has a personality off the pitch. I feel like it's a while since we've had a world class footballer who is willing to come out and you know show a bit of character, show a bit of like you know I'm a normal person, I can have a laugh. And obviously part of that is with him being quite is be, him being very young. Um, but I'm all for it and I hope it continues. Beyond that, on the pitch, he is just an absolute beast and just a pleasure to watch. His his intelligence is unbelievable for someone so young. His positioning, his anticipation, his strength, everything about him. But his his real like standout strength for me is his maturity for his age, the fact that he can read the game the fact that he can find space and very, very experienced defenders are finding it impossible to deal with him. Um, so Dortmund go through. Yes. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that what I think is incredible is that this guy still has everything to learn. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. he hasn't been coached by a great manager yet. Just imagine everything that he can learn, how much he can still improve his game because you will agree that until now, this is pretty much raw talent, right? It's been shaped and molded throughout time. There are definitely indications he's learned, he's improved over the years. But I think that the room for improvement is still huge for this type of player. And I also really like, as you were saying, he's got a personality and everything. And I really like that at the end of the game, first thing that Alan did as soon as the final whistle was blown, he ran to the goalkeeper for Sevilla. They hugged each other. I believe they exchanged the shirts, but it's nice to see that there is competition in the game. And afterwards, he was able to realize that without an apology, maybe he would have looked like an asshole. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it was even the, the even funnier thing was all the Sevilla players chasing him when they saw him taunt the goalkeeper as well. Absolutely great. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. But I think you're right about, yeah, it is majority raw talent that's got him this far. I think also we have to kind of give a lot of credit to the RB Salzburg machine that is just constantly pumping out talent at this point. And this is another one. Obviously, he is the standout one by some distance, but their academy and their coaching there is of is obviously like world-class and potentially one of the best in Europe for developing talent. So you have to give them credit as well. But yeah, the fact that Haaland can improve and will improve is terrifying. This year in the Champions League, he now has 10 goals in six games um, and one assist. And it's considering it's the biggest competition in the world, (laughs) to make it look so easy in like your second season, is it his third season in the Champions League, maybe third? Third season, yeah. Yeah, to make it look so easy so quickly is unbelievable. And he's already kind of beating Ronaldo and Messi in their numbers at this age. So, Talking about the team, though, I'm not fully sold on Borussia Dortmund. They concede way too many goals. They played Mm. a very dangerous game with Sevilla towards the end of the game. And uh, we shall see who they draw for the quarterfinals. 
but I don't. I, I think that we love watching Borussia Dortmund because there are some great names in that team. They play beautiful team football, but in my opinion, they overlook the defense too much, and this problem is going to be is going to come out at some point during the season. And I think, I mean, it already came out in the Bundesliga. I think it, they're going to be. Um, how do you say they're going to be, uh, they're going to be uh, found out. <laughs> be found out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think potentially well. like you're right. I think you're right. They might have already been potentially found out, but like, it, like you said about the defense in this game, they had Emery Chan at center back, right? So he's not a center back. I think they've got a few issues about keeping players fit, but one player that I did want to also give props to because he's a young, talented Englishman is Jude Bellingham at the age of 17. He has just slotted into that midfield, is a regular now, and he really stood out in this game. Also followed by one of the greatest names, Mahmoud Dahoud, who all of a sudden has come from nowhere and just looks like an absolute monster too. So Dortmund still producing those talents and getting them on the pitch, and they're through. Sevilla, unlucky, better luck next year. Maybe if you get into the Europa League, you maybe that's your home guys maybe just you know let arsenal win it this year but then next year you can you can come back right i think that's you where can come back and yeah, come yeah. It. always on tuesday night quite uh strange it's difficult to describe this one because it, it was a comeback from juventus but it wasn't enough to qualify to the quarterfinals due to the away goals rule the goals were a brace by oliveira a brace by Chiesa. And uh, the goal that gave some lifeline to Juventus, but in the end, didn't turn out to be quite crucial by Rabiot. So let's start from Porto. So Porto qualified to the quarterfinals playing with 10 men for 65 minutes. They were playing, I think there was some extra motivation that they were playing Cristiano Ronaldo. We all know how much of a star he is in his home country of Portugal. There was definitely that motivation. I know that Conceição is an incredible manager who pushes a lot players. He's a bit like Simeone from that point of view. And I didn't think that Juventus would have an easy game. But when I saw that red card, the, that second yellow for their midfielder, I was like, uh-uh, this is over. Guess what? It wasn't. And the thing that I found absolutely embarrassing is that in the post-game press conference, there were no questions to Conceição. That's ridiculous. This is an absolute disgrace. I've seen people it blaming it on. I've seen people blaming it on the Italian media, and I think, okay, there is a there is an extent to which the Italian media would be like, well, we lost, so I'm not interested. That is definitely a part of the Italian media. But the fact that there was no one from Portugal even asking him questions is mental. He's just pulled off a huge achievement. You're right. With ten men, they've battled. They've kind of held that not even just held their own they've like really kind of controlled parts of the game and for no one to want to talk to him is i would take it as a personal slight if i was him but also there's more important things will he care considering they've gone through i doubt i he'll think give i think he was like, i think he was just happy to go back to mm. the locker room and celebrate with his with his players but i think yeah i think a lot to blame is on the italian media I think it's ridiculous. Everybody, also the Portuguese media, were looking for Cristiano Ronaldo, I think, more than the Porto players. But guess who cares? They are to the quarterfinals. And talking always at, about the post-game, Ronaldo doesn't go to the microphones. He doesn't say anything. No. Aren't you supposed to be the superstar of this team? So are you going to show your pretty face only when you score a brace? 
only when you score a hat-trick. But when you have a terrible game, you're going to disappear just like that. I think that the fans deserve a little bit more. Yeah, well, how often does that happen? I could I could throw that, I could level that accusation at Aubameyang this year, if you know what I mean. He only ever comes out when he's scored. If he if we play shite, he sends out one of the youngsters. So I think there's plenty of players that do it. Um, but yeah, he should he should be there to front it up and kind of, you know, answer the questions about why arguably his arrival at Juventus has led to a kind of um Oh, what's the bloody word? A reverse, a kind of a decline, not a decline, but it's not been as positive a signing as people would have thought, right? Um, But the one player who did stand out for me, and you mentioned him for Juventus, was Chiesa. He always seems to just pop up when they really, really need him, right? And the best title that I read about this game was by Sconcertis, an Italian football journalist. Sometimes he says dumb shit the majority of the time. This time he had a good pun. He said, my title tomorrow is going to be La Chiesa Tradita dal Cristiano. <laughs> so basically, Chiesa in Italian means church, and Cristiano is a, is a Christian man. Okay, so it, the title oh, went, the church betrayed by the, by the Catholic man, by the Christian man. I so like La Chiesa that. Tradita dal Cristiano. And I agree with him 100%. After all the praise that I've been giving to Cristiano Ronaldo recently, comparing him to Messi, we'll get to the Barcelona game as well, saying that Cristiano Ronaldo has much more of a drive. Well, I was proven wrong this very week. Cristiano Ronaldo did not seem to be present in the game. He made a bunch of poor decisions. Mm-hmm. And the guy that really stood out was was Chiesa, uh, in big contrast with Ronaldo. And to score the first goal, he pretty much took the ball away from Cristiano Ronaldo's feet. <laughs> I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo put it down. He did very well there. But then I think that he kind of wanted to keep going at it. And Chiesa was just like, Lasha. And then with that incredible angle, he made mm. it 1-1. One, one. It was like right in the corner as well. It was like right in the corner. It was a beautiful hit. And then the header as well was a great header. Absolutely. Um, We've we've been talking about this player, one of the most, one of the best Italian talents coming up in this generation. I think that I, I mean I'm very excited to see him perform in the national team. But yeah, he was the real protagonist for Juventus, unlike Cristiano Ronaldo and unlike their defense. So after Demiral gives away a very poor penalty, can somebody explain what the fuck happened to Juventus wall in in that free kick <sighs> that from is- Porto? absolutely embarrassing in extra time when you're like backs against the wall you've really got to be going to try and get through this for everyone to turn their back on that ball no one's like even putting a foot out it's just complete cowardice and Oliveira afterwards said that they studied it he said they always jump in the wall so we just hit it low and it went in I think Chesney got a bit of stick he should be doing better but also that ball should not even be reaching him that shouldn't even be getting to the goal so it's kind of it was a disaster all over. But for Oliveira, he's had a bit of a tough time of it at Porto. He's been there since he was eight or ten, I think. He's been on loan at seven different clubs, never really made his name at that club, and now he's become the linchpin of their midfield and scored a brace to get them through to the quarterfinals. It doesn't get much better than that, right? Um, but the only thing that is better is seeing Nedved's reaction as he kicked the uh, as he kicked the sideboard afterwards was. Hilarious. And uh, they talk about, in Italy, uh, Juventus are very proud to talk about the Stile Juventus. Like, Juventus have got style, you know, they've got mm-hmm. class. They're the classy team. Like, oh, no, we cannot sign Cassano. What about the Stile Juventus? And then you see there are there are clips that keep leaking 
of Nedved and Paratici on the in the stands, just like insulting the ref and like saying bad words and like kicking the boards. Uh, show some maturity, guys, please. But Rory, where does this third consecutive Champions League loss to a in quotation brackets oh. smaller team means for Juventus? So 2019 Ajax, 2020 Lyon, 2021 Porto. What is going to happen next? Is Cristiano Ronaldo going to stay? Well, it's worth pointing out that these are all teams that, according to Agnelli, are not good enough to be in the European Super League and they do not deserve to be in the Champions League, right? That needs to be pointed out. We all know Agnelli's an arsehole. It doesn't surprise us. But where does this leave Ronaldo now? I, I think he won't be there next year. Um, I don't know who's going to pay his money. I don't know who's going to pay his wages after a, like, in a post-COVID world, if we ever get to the post-COVID world. But, like, I don't know who's going to pay the money, but I feel like maybe he'll end up in Paris. Um, but I think this time in Juventus will be kind of scratched off as not, it's definitely not a failure. Look, he's won the league every year he's been here. Maybe not this year, touch wood, but he's won Serie A twice already, right? Um, so I don't think it can be marked as a failure, but it would be a disappointment. I don't think... And also, Juventus have shafted themselves financially for this deal. They've absolutely shafted themselves. So, they... so yeah, I, I was actually taking a look at the Juventus transfer market ever since they lost their last Champions League final to Real Madrid. Um, in 2017, they got Bernardeschi for 30 million, Matuidi for 30 million, Cuadrado for 25 million. Douglas Costa for 25. The only good deal that summer was Chesney for 17 million. Mm. The next summer, Cristiano Ronaldo comes in for 100 million together with uh, Cancelo. The next year, 75 million for the league, 20 for Danilo, 25 for Kulusevsky. That was kind of a still mm. um, far sighted business. But then this last summer, Arthur, Morata, Chiesa, which was a big one, and McKenney. And I do think that. Cristiano Ronaldo, I think it would be better for Juventus if he just left. Besides that, for him, I think that for Juventus' finances, it would be better. And they could start rebuilding a team around the four players that people have been very impressed with this season. Their goalkeeper, Chesney, center-back, mm-hmm. the league, midfield, McKinney, Chiesa. And you just start building a team around yeah, these yeah. four names for your future. And maybe you just accept that for one or two years you are not going to win that much. We shall see. I, I think, think they've, I think, like, sorry, before we move on, I think what they've done is they've just put all their eggs in one basket for we need to win the Champions League and it's not paid off. They've rolled the dice, it's not happened, and now they need to sit back and think, right, how do we do this now? And what they've weirdly done is they've made a squad that's not balanced and they've now lost, lost footing in the league that they were dominating. It's really, if you're a Juventus fan, I'm sorry, I have literally no sympathy for you, but you would be feeling pretty depressed right now and pretty kind of lost. But you know what? Let someone else have a go. Like, Yeah, we shall see. We shall see what the Juventus management do, but they really need to sit down and start planning better ahead, just like Barcelona, the once mighty Barcelona, who go out after a 1-1 draw at the Parc de Princes. Messi, what a goal, but also what a penalty miss. Same question, Rory. Let's start from this. What is next for Messi and what is next for Barcelona? I do not know. I feel like he, 
across this half a season, three quarters of a season that we're at, we've gone from Messi hates Barcelona, he can't wait to leave, to things starting to get better, okay, maybe he's enjoying it, to now he really seems to be enjoying coaching the kids and bringing through like Mariba and Ricky Puggi, is that how you say it? I can't remember. Um, Push. Push, yeah, I can't get it. And but it, So it kind of feels like now maybe he's enjoying it more, Laporta's back, so maybe there'll be kind of some movement there. I think... Messi now will probably stay at Barcelona. I think the City thing was a a moment in time opportunity that's probably gone. Um, I think City next summer will be more focusing on getting a striker for the long term than getting a 32-year-old Messi. Um, so I think maybe that moment's gone. But for Barcelona... This was one of the best performances I've seen from them in a very long time. Like I a very agreed. I, they put up a fight and they came out as the better side after the 90 minutes. I think that over the eight, 180 minutes, the game that PSG played in Barcelona mm. uh, gives them the right to qualify. But the game that we saw in Paris, Barcelona were pushing big time. Messi was looking very lively. And I do think that if they had had a better third man up front than Dembele, who was probably wearing Timberlands, they might have done the long-awaited remontada, I think. Yeah, I think it, that was the difference, really. I think if Dembele could had a tiny bit more composure, or any composure at all, Barcelona would have gone through. Um what impressed me with Barcelona is that you were starting to get those hidden passes again, the kind of no-look passes, the one-twos, the quick kind of people running off each other and running across each other, and you were getting those patterns. And it was like, I was watching, I was like, wow, it's, it's a while since I've seen this at Barcelona. It's a, it's always seemed, every time I've seen them recently, a bit stilted and out of ideas. And maybe Coleman is actually doing a pretty good job with a squad that is completely unbalanced and no idea of design to it. So I think maybe he's doing a good job. I think they absolutely dominated the first half. They definitely should have scored. Messi missed the penalty, but also Keylor Navas had a very good game. He stopped everything that came out. So we need to give him some props too. Yeah. He he was, yeah, he, he was incredible. So I think that was a part of it as well. But this is what you need, right? If you're going to go on to win the trophy, you need the luck. Um, Mbappe still got a penalty, which I think is, an incredibly harsh penalty and the fact he got booked for it as well is ridiculous um but the second that penalty went in you were like okay well there's the game ruined game over but Messi managed to absolutely smash a beauty in from I don't know 40 yards it was miles out um some people are saying that might be his last ever Champions League goal I don't know where people think he's going what where he's going to Arsenal (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, I'll fucking take him. We might actually. Oh, no, God, I don't. don't think, I'm going to run away with my imagination. No, I don't um, think this is going to be Messi's last Champions League goal. Maybe his last Champions League goal for Barcelona. Yeah. But I do think that also Barcelona, if Messi is going to go, or even if he's going to stay, they should focus on four good players that I've just like I did for Juventus. Mm-hmm. The four players that impressed me the most: Ter Stegen, I think, is up there among the best goalkeepers in the world. Lenglet, is, he doesn't excite me that much, but he's a pretty good centre-back. Mm-hmm. And then Serginho Dest, wow. He's been really impressing me. And he did... I actually think there was a penalty on him. 
Um, I thought that was a penalty as well. And he had absolute free reign of that wing. Um, was it Kazawa he was against or was it the other side? I can't remember. But he just couldn't get close to him. So Junior Dest, every time he had the ball, ran straight into the box. No opposition. And he, like, he was a monster. Scored, he almost scored an angle-less goal mm. from the byline, pretty much. Another very good save from, um, from Navas. And the other player that I think has been looking really under the radar, but just because that front three is not functional to their game, I don't believe anymore, it's Antoine Griezmann. I think Mm. that as soon as you start building a project with clear ideas and you make Griezmann really the focal point of your attack, at that point, the guy has got it in him. We've seen it with France, we've seen it with Atletico Madrid, with Real Sociedad before he made the big move to Simeone's court. I think that Griezmann is just waiting for a an offensive plan built around him. And at that point, Barcelona will be back where they belong. But so, yeah, PSG make it through the quarterfinals, just like Liverpool, who win 4-0 on aggregate against Leipzig. What did you make of this game, Rory? Liverpool might just, I was talking to Chris about it last night. I was like, they might just find themselves going far in the Champions League. You know, they might just, it might be the distraction or something. I think it would be very Liverpool to have an awful season in the Premier League and do very well in Europe. I think not to like jinx it massively, but when they won it with Benitez, they finished like seventh or something, right? Like that's what I was going to say when they won mm. that game, that 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 final against <laughs> AC Milan. They were doing terribly in the yeah. in the league, and they they played in the next year's Champions League just because they had just because, but because they had won the cup. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. But yeah, yeah so, so, so uh, you no, go. go on, go on, Tommy. <laughs> you go, you go, you go. No, so I think it's been a, a welcome distraction. And weirdly, I think going to Budapest has been good for them. They've now scored more goals in Budapest in 2021 than they have at Anfield, which is mental. Um, <laughs> so, four. Um, but yeah, what a performance. I think Liverpool, it's always the same deal with them recently. They can create chances. They just can't finish them. Like, they created a lot of chances Um and Salah, who's apparently having a terrible season, I was looking at his stats. He's he's got twenty five goals in thirty nine games this season, right? That's a bloody good terrible season, right? But still, the problem remains that they create the chances they can't finish them. But the big difference for them here was that Fabinho was finally back in midfield. He wasn't playing as a centre back. They had Kabak and Phillips, I believe, at the back. Um, so a young defender. Um, it was Phillips, and just having that screen in front of them, the kind of Kante role, just offered so much security for them, and they just looked so much more assured. Um, the two goals ca- came kind of late on, but you can't say that they didn't deserve it. Um, for Leipzig now, their focus just switches squarely to the Bundesliga title race, right? I think um, the manager whose name escapes me, Nagelsmann. Um, Nagelsmann, will be disappointed to go out this way. But I think they're they're squarely focused on the Bundesliga, so I think they won't be too upset about going out. You know, they got to the semi-finals last year. It's kind of steady progress, isn't it? Um, I think that on April on April third, we'll have an answer whether they're really pushing for the Bundesliga or not, as they're facing Bayern Munich. And let's not forget that in the first game of the season, they drew three three, so they really put up a fight. We shall see because it will come around the time when the quarterfinals will be played, and I'm mm-hmm. assuming Bayern Munich will be there. So we shall see how they handle both competitions. 
the player that really stood out for me for uh, for Leipzig was, and I will say it once again because I called it in one of the first episodes that <laughs> we ever recorded, Christopher Nkunku. Christopher Nkunku, he plays on the left flank and he plays kind of everywhere else in the pitch. And every single play, every single dangerous play for Leipzig was started by this man on the left flank. He's got the vision. He doesn't quite always have the shot. He had a few, they, they left him shoot a few times. He couldn't really angle it correctly, but man, his vision and how he creates space, how he attracts defenders to him. There was a moment after the fourth time that the play was starting from him that Klopp must have given his defenders directions like go towards him. And as soon as two defenders went towards him, he was creating space for other players mm-hmm. to run in the box and then beautiful through balls that they, the forwards couldn't, however, quite capitalize. But the player that I was very unimpressed with is Upamecano. Man, what kind of game did he have the last night? Every time I see him, he seems to drop a clanger. I think in the first leg against Liverpool, he really wasn't great. I think the they played United in the Champions League, right? And I think he had a bit of a horror show. I, Last year in the Champions League, I remember him having a bit of a nightmare. So I think he's obviously a young defender, and this is going to happen with young centre-backs. They do have mistakes. Um, but every time... And again, I'm not a regular watcher of the Bundesliga. This guy could be killing it against like Mainz and Wolfsburg and the likes. I don't know. But every time he's on the big stage, he seems to drop a bollock. So <laughs> I'm not really sure what the hype is about, but... On the same hand, I'm sure that I don't know, and there are people who know much more about it that do say he's very good. But yeah, he had a bit of a nightmare, and Liverpool will be very happy about it. But Nkunku has been in great form in the Bundesliga as well. I think he's got um, two goals and two assists in his last two games. Um, we were talking about their partnership on Monday with him, Paulson, and uh, Soloff really coming together. So I think, yeah, he's been um, a great signing for them from PSG as well. I think I was surprised they let him go, but there we go. There we go. And that was our UCL roundup. As we are speaking, the Europa League action, the games that started at 7 p.m. or rather at 6.55 p.m. For some reason, they've come to halftime. Ajax are drawing nil-nil to the young boys from Switzerland. Dinamo Kiev are losing 1-0 to Villarreal with a goal by Torres. Menu and AC Milan, hmm, still nil-nil after that controversial goal from what we hear disallowed and Slavia Prague drawing 1-1 to Rangers Philippe Lander former Bologna legend with the goal and, and an assist from Yanis Hadji Georgie Hadji's son always good to see that name about Hello. so yeah the Glaswegians have got themselves back in it with a nice away goal that'll help they must have shook the hangovers off eh? And it's time to really get the blimp spinning because we are going to go to Spain. So Spain, where Atletico Madrid finally played their game in hand against Athletic Bilbao, and it was a win. They came back from 1-0 down. Muniain gave Atletic Bilbao the lead, but then Llorente and Suarez with the penalty to give Atletico a much-needed win that sees them now six points over Barcelona and eight over cross-city rivals Real Madrid. Marcos Llorente, we mentioned him already. This year in the in the Liga, he's got 26 appearances, nine goals and eight assists. Last year, 
After just as many games, he had the three goals and four assists. Ooh. In the Champions League, he's also got a goal and an assist in seven games. He looks like the new kind of midfield reference point of a Simeone's team. We know who the focal point is up front. Luis Suarez, 18 goals and two assists in thir- 23 games. He's actually already overtaken his record that he had with Barcelona last year. That guy is hungry. and uh, He is hungry. But I think Llorente is ready to step into that Coque role. Like You know, Coque is an absolute icon for Hell them. Yeah. Like, been there God knows how many years, always chips in with goals. I think Llorente is ready to step into that, into those boots. Um yeah, I was nervous about this one. When I saw they were 1-0 down, I was like, oh, Atleti are really going to throw this away, aren't they? They're really going to do it. But touch wood, they managed to grind out this result. This is a huge result. I'm telling you, that is massive. Just psychologically for them, I think that is absolutely huge. If they'd have even drawn it, I think they would just start to look over their shoulders. But now Simeone will be like, look, we've had the pressure. We've dealt with it. We need to just keep going forward. I think if anyone can push them forward, it's Simeone backed up by Suarez, right? And they only have three big games, if we want to call call them that, against Sevilla on April 4th away. But Sevilla, as we will discuss, have been in very poor form. Athletic Bilbao again away on April 25th. And then the big one, Barcelona away on May 9th. So there are going to be three big away games for Atletico Madrid to try and seal the title win. These are the three big games that are standing on their way. We shall see. What about this weekend? This weekend on Saturday, we've got Real Madrid playing Elche at 4.15 p.m. Central European time and Getafe 15th in La Liga take on Atletico at 9 p.m. And on Sunday, we've got a little derby action with Sevilla, who are sitting fourth currently, playing Real Betis, sitting at sixth and looking much more dangerous than their cross-city rivals. Right, guys, if there's anybody out there who doesn't really watch Spanish football, this derby is so underrated. Like, globally, people don't realize how much this derby matters. The Sevilla derby is absolutely fucking huge. It's always a bit of a ding-dong, whether the fans are there or not. The players do not like each other, and they're usually very entertaining games. So I would say, if you're looking for a game to get you into La Liga, you can't go much wrong with the Sevilla derby. I think. Yeah, and two teams in very, uh, living very different moments. Sevilla only have one win over the last six games in all competitions, and they have got two consecutive losses in La Liga. While Real Betis, they've got four wins in their last six games across all competitions and four consecutive wins in La Liga. The Liga weekend will be closed up while we'll be live on Twitch on Monday night at 9pm with Barcelona second on the table taking on the already relegated boys of Huesca who are sitting 20th and looking poor AF. Rory, let's spin this blimp and let's go to Germany. What do we have going on there? Germany this weekend. We have some exciting games coming up. So we have, um, let me find the page. My computer is... Leipzig versus Frankfurt. Yes, starting with... 
of course, Leipzig versus Frankfurt. So last time it was a one-all draw. We have second taking on fourth. Leipzig, of course, fresh off being knocked out of the Champions League by Liverpool. They are now only two points behind Bayern and they need to start pushing. So they will be wanting to win this game, obviously, but especially as the fact that Bayern this week are playing Werder, who are sat currently in 12th. And Werder, the last time they beat Bayern... Ozil and Pizarro scored for them. That was the last time for the Bremen beat Bayern. And Pizarro was probably already 45 years old at that point. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he already had great grandkids at that point. Um, so that was the last time Werder won against Bayern. So I think RB Leipzig will not be holding their breath from any for any favours from Bremen. But who knows? You never know what can happen. Um, beyond that, we have Dortmund taking on Hertha Berlin. Things have been looking pretty rough for Hertha as they're still kind of close to the relegation zone. Last time, Dortmund won 5-2 with Haaland getting four. So Hertha Berlin won't be too optimistic going into this um, fixture. And this kind of sums up the weekend for all the teams towards the bottom of the table. Armenia, who are also in the relegation zone, are away to Leverkusen. Schalke, who are bottom, are away to Wolfsburg. And Mainz are playing Freiburg. So all the basement boys have a tough weekend coming up. So Leipzig will definitely be wanting to get something as all their competitors are should have a fairly stress-free weekend. Nice. Where should we go next? I actually kind of wanted to take a quick, quick, quick trip to Istanbul in the Turkish Super League, which we've been talking about quite a bit recently. And guess what? The picture up there has changed, Rory. And Besiktas are now first in the league with 60 points and one game in hand. How did this happen? Well, of course, Galatasaray drew their last game against Sivaspor on Sunday, and last week they lost 2-0 to the team, one of the teams from Ankara. So only one point in their last two games, while Besiktas made very light work of their opposition, and they have got now four, five consecutive wins in the Super League, and they look like the tie, the team that might snatch the trophy, while Fenerbahce have won their last game 3-0 to Konyaspor on Monday night, but they also drew against Antalyaspor last Thursday. So we've got quite a bit of a race in the Turkish Super League as well. We'll see if Besiktas can make it or not. Rory, we might have to have Semis on again to tell us how he's feeling. Yeah, I think, well, as the season gets to the business end, we'll have to have him on again. But I need to make a quick correction. Apparently, Kamal is not a Besiktas fan. He's a Galatasaray fan. I apologize, but I definitely remember Kamal having a Besiktas fan when I was like, uh, a shirt at high school. But anyway, quick corrections and errors. Um, next, shall we go to France for a quick weekend preview? But before we go to Ooh. France, bam, bam, Manchester United have scored with, I believe it's his first goal ever for the Devils, Ahmad Diallo. Oh. He was subbed in at the 46th minute, and right now he gives Manu the lead thanks to a Bruno Fernandes assist at the 50th 
minute. I mean, I'm curious to, to see Twitter the goal. Twitter is going to be exploding right now. United fans have been very excited to see that guy make an impression at United. And what a first impression to make. My God. Exactly. But let's go to France, Rory. What do we have uh, France, we have another kind of exciting weekend coming up, I think, as always in Liga at the moment. I feel like a lot of the games are quite um, quite close, quite tense, a lot on the line. And on, on Sunday, at five past five, which is a really weird uh, kickoff time, Central European time, we have fourth taking on first as Monaco host Lille. Last time, Lille won 2-1 with goals from Jonathan David and Yazici. I think I'm saying that right. Um and Monaco are fresh from losing 1-0 to Strasbourg at home. So, very different fortunes, but it will be an interesting game. Lille will be very keen to hold on to that top spot as PSG now look like they're kind of hitting strides. Um, so, that game is on Sunday at 5 past 5. Meanwhile, this weekend, their competitors in Lyon and PSG have kind of Fairly straightforward weekends. Leon are away to mid-table Reims on Friday at 9 o'clock. Um, Reims have only won one of their last five. And the last time Leon won this 3-0. Goals from Ekambe, Guimaraes and Dembele. So Leon will feel comfortable coming into this one or confident. And PSG are playing Raymond Domenech's old team, Nantes, who find themselves in the relegation zone. So you would expect a home win there. But the other exciting game, I think the interesting game to watch, is the two teams we've talked about in the past, Lons versus Mets as the two kind of surprise packages of season. So this is fifth versus seventh. Um, Mets won 2-0 last time. And like I said, these teams are both the kind of surprise package of the season. People are um, enjoying watching them. Lons were knocked out of the French Cup last week, so maybe their heads will be a bit down. But I noticed that their top scorer is Gael Kakuta, who Chelsea fans will remember. He's a kind of much-promised but failed career at Stamford Bridge, unfortunately. So this is my game to keep an eye on, and this is on Sunday at 3 o'clock. Um, elsewhere, Sampaoli won his first game for Marseille in charge. They won 1-0 against Rennes. And he is looking to build on that as they take on Brest, lol, this weekend at Saturday on Saturday at five o'clock. I think Sam Paoli's teams always play really interesting in attacking football. So maybe Marseille will be a team to start watching now he's taken the helm. And I feel like he's a good fit for Marseille. I feel like Marseille fans are very vocal. They're very, they're, they want their team to be fighting. And the Sam Paoli is crazy. So he should He is absolutely fit. mental. I tried to find a normal looking picture of him on Google Images and he's. Took no, me a long time. He's always angry. Time. He's one of the few. He's one of the few managers that rocks like a full sleeve of tattoos and is not ashamed <laughs> by it. Love it. Um, as we're speaking, Villarreal take a two 0 lead thanks to a goal by Raúl Albiol. I had to go check if it was the same Raúl Albiol. He looks like a much different man. He's put up a beard and he looks kind of older. Of course, he's like. 35 now but yeah it's the same Raul Albiol that played for Napoli and Real Madrid all the other scores are the same as we've told you earlier and I think that it's about time to move to Serie A because we still haven't had the chance to review the very important win that Inter had against Atalanta so we watched that game together Rory how how was the experience for you? 
I thought it was a really good game. I feel like both teams really went for it. It was a very attacking game, uh, especially the first half was very open. But Inter saw another comfortable win. I don't think they were ever really in danger. I think Handanovic made a few good saves, but it never really felt like... It never really felt like they were panicking, which is strange for an interside. Um, my favourite moment, as you know, was that the final moments when they cut to the bench and all the players, even before the final whistle had gone, were all laughing and smiling. I was like, oh, there's a bit of team spirit here. There's a bit of a feeling. They've got a feeling that they can do it, especially when you saw Kolarov smiling. I was like, that guy's just there for the ride. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah, he, and he's loving it. So I... the the. Um... I love the, our friend Reed. He sent me a voice message and he said that he felt like a boxing match. A lot of body punches. Yeah, it felt like the two teams couldn't really punch each other in the face. So there were, there were a lot of body blows. Eventually, Inter managed to... It was kind of a strange goal. I've re-looked at it. De Vrij fell to the ground after contact. Bastoni also fell to the ground and Skriniar just like hammered it in. Sometimes wins come that way. Don't talk to me like Inter are not playing good football. That game versus Atalanta, what are you going to do? Are you going to play offensive football and then be found out on the counter and lose the game 3-2? Like, no thanks. I think that it was a very tactical win. Some wins are going to be ugly, but don't come to me telling me that we play Catenaccio. So right now, Inter against AC Milan, Juventus and Atalanta allowed zero goals and scored nine. Still, they talk about Catenaccio. They say that AC Milan play much better football, but against Inter, Juventus, and Atalanta, they conceded nine goals and scored zero. So, get your facts straight. Thanks, guys. And all of a sudden, Inter fans, like myself, are supporting Napoli, since Napoli are taking on AC Milan in San Siro on Sunday night, and on Tuesday, they play their gaming end against Juve. Now, if... Napoli win both of these games, and we get our win versus Torino. At that point, I think that it's done. I doubt that Napoli will be able to get two wins against two big ifs, mate. Two very big ifs. It's two very big ifs. Forza Napoli, been supporting the club ever since I was a kid. Not really, but I am supporting the club now. I have all the respect in the world for Gattuso, who now has this double test that Inter fans will be looking at, but also the following week. Napoli are going to play Roma. So three games. Got a rough run of fixtures. That is a, is a rough very run rough run of fixtures. I am actually happy for them that they're not in the Europa League. One last thing to focus mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So right now they can actually go all in on the league. They kind of need to because they're currently sitting sixth, two points behind Atalanta. Um, I think that it would be a great accomplishment if Napoli managed to play Champions League football this season looking at how the league is looking right now. But always talking about Inter, there are only 12 games to go, and I identified the three big ones. On April 18th, they play Napoli away. On May 12th, Roma at home. And on May 16th, Juventus in Turin. So, boys, do whatever you will, but I don't want to there to be points like floating around when we play Juventus. That would be a very dangerous thing. It has thing to be to done by then, Tommy. It has to be done by then. Yeah, that's why Forza Napoli, goddammit. Yeah, yeah <laughs> because I, I do not trust Inter going to the Allianz Stadium or whatever it's called with something on the line. I just don't trust it. I don't trust it at all. I don't trust it either. Big games this weekend. There is no big fixture except AC Milan against Napoli at 8.45 p.m. on Sunday. 
on Friday, tomorrow, today, you're listening today, right? <laughs> hey, it's Friday. At 3 p.m. for some reason, Lazio are playing Crotone and Atalanta take on La Spezia at 8.45. On Saturday, we've got a bit of a hipster fixture for the lovers of tactics and upcoming teams. Sassuolo-Verona at 3 p.m. Relegation battle, Benevento-Fiorentina at 6 p.m. And the Genoa-Udinese at 8.45. While on Sunday, we've got Parma-Roma, a 90s classic that shouldn't be as exciting this time, though at 3 3 p.m. Same time, Torino take on Inter. Cagliari play Juventus at 6 p.m. Remember that Cagliari haven't lost a single game since they sacked Di Francesco. And finally, Milan-Napoli at 8.45 p.m. A lot to be decided. Also, for the Champions League and Europa League spots, take a look at the Serie A table. It's looking intense, but it's finally time to go to the uh, the heavily criticized country <laughs> of England. I'm referring, of course, to all the shade that has been thrown by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle over the last week. How are things in England, Rory? Oh, God. Can I just... I, I never thought I'd be, like, begging for more football, like, moronicness on Twitter. All it has been is pictures of bloody Harry and Meghan. That's all it is. Or pictures of Piers Morgan and all of them can fuck off. But anyway, this <laughs> weekend, it could be an even worse week for Piers Morgan, the famous Arsenal fan, as we have the North London derby. I'm absolutely terrified. Spurs have won their last three. We are as inconsistent as ever. And Gareth Bale has finally remembered how to play football. I can see exactly what is going to happen this weekend. He's definitely going to score. He's definitely going to score. I can see it already. The only thing that gives me encouragement is that um, Tottenham haven't won at the Emirates. And I'm going to jinx it now I've said it. They haven't won at the Emirates in the league since 2010 um, in the league. They beat us in the League Cup at, um, at the Emirates two seasons ago, I believe. But on the same hand, we also haven't beaten Tottenham. <laughs> in the last five attempts. So the last time we beat Tottenham was in uh, 2018. It feels like a very long time ago. Two goals from Oba. Lacazette got one and Torreira got the winner. This was the one where Aaron Ramsey, one of the many reasons why I will always love that man, he got in an argument with um, Eric Dyer um, when he was on the bench and Eric Dyer told him to sit down and shut up. After we won the game, the assist coming from Aaron Ramsey, um, he posted on Instagram like a winky face with the sit down, he said, with him on the pitch. So I fucking love Rambo for that. Um, So good memories. But for Tottenham, they have had the better of it the last couple of times. So we shall see. I think Mourinho is... I always think Mourinho has got a plan for Arsenal and he has our number usually. So I'm not confident. But I think a draw I would honestly take... um, don't I'm just forget. so terrified that they're going to do us. I'm so terrified that they're going to do us. Um, don't forget that Rory has an ongoing 50 American dollar bet with our friend Max in Minneapolis that Arsenal are going to finish above Spurs. So I think this weekend will tell us something about that bet. I think too. I'm about to lose $50. Um, look, about, age, uh, the North uh, London yeah. Derby is always, sorry, the North London Derby is always a really entertaining game. There's always goals. The only problem is we're having to play a full-strength team in Europe now because the Europa League is our focus, so we can't even rest players for this. Um, 
We'll see. I just hope that on Monday I am really, really smug and not really, really depressed. But that game is on Sunday at half past five. I'm already counting down the minutes, hours, seconds until it starts. But beyond that, that is definitely the headline act, right? I think this weekend that is the headline act. But beyond that, we have Manchester. We have a a second headline, which is Massey Lingard going back to the theater of dreams. Exactly. And David Moyes going back to his old job, right? Um, So Manchester United take on West Ham on Sunday at quarter past eight. Last time Man United won 3-1. This was a weird game. The first half, West Ham absolutely dominated it. And the second half, United just woke up. Pogba scored an absolute beauty. And then the kind of floodgates opened. But I feel like that game, West Ham really deserved something from the game. And I wouldn't write them off from getting something this time out with uh, Manchester United playing as we speak and West Ham having um, a kind of bit of time off. Maybe Moyes can take some revenge on his old employers, although his record against Manchester United is not great. But for West Ham, it's been a fantastic season and we hope it just continues. I'm just, like we talked about on Monday with Tom, I'm just really enjoying seeing them do well. Um, Obviously, a great win against Leeds on Monday night, um, 2-0. So that will their run for European football uh, shall keep going. And for United, we need to see if this massive result against City, if their form will actually stick, right? Because usually, like we said, they have big results, then they fall away. We'll see if they can actually keep this momentum going. So and that's another of, game to keep an eye on. During the week, uh, Man City played their 29th, match day game and they won 5-2 to Southampton which now gives them a 14 point lead over Man United who are going to play their 29th over the weekend I don't understand about the Premier League schedule sometimes they do funny things like that like whoops City are going to play their 29th game this week I don't know it's all over the place it's absolutely all over the place I'm not even counting which match day it is I'm just taking the results as it comes like it's it's too hard to keep on top of it really is but the Manchester United the Manchester City sorry the Man City Southampton game was also a bit mental (laughs) Um, goals going in everywhere Riyad Mahrez oh my god he is a pleasure to watch when he's on form bloody hell he is like his footwork was absolutely beautiful. Two amazing goals from him. I think he got an assist as well. Foden definitely should have scored. There was now some, you know how people moan that players go down too easily in modern football, right? And they're like, oh, why, why are they always hitting the deck? Why are they always hitting the deck? Well, we saw why this week because Foden was massively fouled by the goalkeeper. He tried to get up and continue to run to try and score and got nothing because he didn't stay down. VAR checked it and still didn't give the penalty. It's like, well, what is VAR there for then? I thought it was there for the decisions that the refs missed, not the decisions that the refs called, right? It seemed completely ridiculous that that decision didn't get given. Pep was really annoyed about it afterwards, despite the win. He said at that point it was 1-1. If we hadn't have been able to score, all of a sudden that decision is huge. And we dropped points in this title race. Like, so he was really not happy. He even referenced the Arsenal decision against Burnley. Um, so he was definitely on his soapbox about that. But it was a great game. Southampton gave a really good account of themselves. I'm really impressed with Shea Adams. He's fitted into the Premier League kind of really quickly. Some of his goals are beautiful. Um, and De Bruyne got two. It was just a very, very nice game to watch. A nice game to watch. But the last game I'm going to preview this weekend before we go on to um, the weekly topic is 
Leeds United versus Chelsea on Saturday at one o'clock. It feels like I'm always talking about Leeds and how great they are to watch, despite the fact they're in terrible form. Bielsa um, just celebrated his 1,000th day as Leeds manager. Just nice. Yeah. I like that. That's a nice little stat. But Chelsea Leeds is like a weird derby that goes back all the way to the 70s. I think it's the 70s when they were the kind of two successful teams, two very different teams. Leeds were very hard, very physical, and Chelsea were kind of the champagne boys. And there was a kind of a rivalry formed here. And so it's always a game worth keeping an eye on. Like I said, that is on Saturday at one o'clock. Tuchel still unbeaten, Leeds one win in their last five, including four losses. So Leeds need to turn around this form quickly, I think. And the Tuchel, I believe I don't have the stat right in front of me, but he needs three more games unbeaten to beat uh, Sarri's record of... Wow. Uh, of- being unbeaten in the first 10 games, I believe. Sadi is so disrespected, like, all the time. It's mad how people don't rate his time more highly. Like, it is mental. (laughs) Nice. And and that was our little, actually not very little, our very in-depth Euro review for this week. I hope you don't have any questions. We've covered literally everything that there was to cover. Just a quick roundup of the... um, Europa League fixtures. Ajax are currently winning 1-0. Villarreal still a 2-0 lead away at Dinamo Kiev. Man United still leading 1-0 to AC Milan and Slavia Prague and Rangers drawing one square. Let's move on to our weekly topic where we're going to talk about crazy and possibly forgotten Champions League comebacks. And here we are in our weekly topic section that this week is going to be dedicated to incredible Champions League comebacks. We've picked the four to each that we feel like some people might have forgotten over time. Why did we choose this topic? Because there weren't many big upsets. I mean, the Porto one was a big upset, but it wasn't really a comeback. And just for the sake of football, we hope to see a few next week. We're talking about Atalanta. We're talking about Atletico Madrid. Well, Lazio seems kind of unthinkable. But upon reviewing some of these games, who knows whether you will think that those results can be overturned. And we're starting our trip in the... What season, Rory, again? 2003? 2004? All the way back to when I was a young child in high school with all the promise of the world ahead of me. And we are in the 03-04 season and we are going to the now infamous, although I think often forgotten tie between Monaco and Real Madrid. Now, I think the reason why this tie is often forgotten is because this is the season when Jose Mourinho became a thing. This is when people realized who he was, what he could do. And that meant that unfortunately for Monaco, this incredible team and this incredible tie often gets forgotten about. But I'm going to take you into the time machine and we go all the way back and I'm going to show you their squad, okay? And I'm going to take you through a few of the names on this squad. They had Patrice Evra, Ludovic Julie, Jerome Rothen, a young Emmanuel Adebayor, Dado Perso, Squilacci, Edu Cisse, and most importantly, on loan... Fernando Morientes. So this was a very good squad for Monaco. 
for the Real Madrid team now, for this squad, are you ready for the Real Madrid squad? This is absolute peak Galacticos. We Let's have go. Casillas, Salgado, Carlos, Zidane, Helguera, Raul, Figo, Ronaldo, Guti, Cambiasso, Solari, Beckham, and Pavon. Now, this was a legendary team, right? Yeah, man. And I, it's not the only legendary team that we're going to talk about today. And the, the, the first game that I will break down actually happened in the same exact Champions League season. So this was probably the peak of world and European football. The football that personally I fell in love with when I was a kid. We're still talking about wide kits, wide jerseys, um, the pitch that sometimes doesn't look as proper as it does now, uh, those lotto boots that I used to love when I was a kid. (laughs) So this is the time. But Rory, take us through this tie. Yeah, so going through these highlights, I was like, I could just, I remembered like a memory I'd not thought of in years of like, I remember watching this game with my dad on the sofa at home, like the second leg of this tie. But anyway, so Monaco and Real Madrid, let's set you some context. So that summer, Real Madrid had bought in David Beckham from Manchester United. Their manager was Carlos Queros, who wasn't there for long. Um, and Hierro had recently retired. But this was a great, great Real Madrid team. For Monaco, that summer, they had brought in, of course, Morientes um, on loan from Real Madrid. Their manager was Didier Deschamps. And these teams would both have kind of um, similar fairings in the league. Monaco finished third behind Lyon and PSG. And Real Madrid finished fourth this season. Um, this was when Benitez won it with Valencia. They finished fourth behind Valencia, Barcelona, and Deportivo. But let's go through how they got to meet each other. So Monaco were drawn in a group with Deportivo, PSV, and AEK Athens. The standout performances were Monaco battering AEK Athens 4-0 at home, two goals from Morientes, a goal from Dado Perso and Ludovic Juli, and most notably. And I do remember this game. They beat Deportivo 8-2 at home. Dado Perso getting four goals. The others coming from Rothen, Julie, Placille and Edu Cisse. So they went through the group top and very easily. As for Real Madrid, they were drawn in a group with Porto, Marseille and Partizan Belgrade. Their standout results were they beat Marseille at home 4-2. Goals from El Fenomeno, Figo and Roberto Carlos. And they beat Porto 3-1 with Helguera, Solari and Zidane getting the goals. They as well went through top of their group. So, in the round of 16, (laughs) Monaco had to face Lokomotiv Moscow. And as would become a theme for Monaco, they went through on away goals, drawing 2-2 with the Moscovites over two legs. And that set up their quarterfinal with Real Madrid. Real Madrid, on the other hand, they had to get past Bayern Munich, which they did so fairly comfortably. They beat Bayern Munich 2-1 on aggregate. And this made Ronaldo their top goal scorer in the competition. So we head into this tie. And at the time, Real Madrid were definitely cocky Real Madrid it was Los Galacticos. They were certain that they were going to get through this tie. Absolutely certain. But? And after the first leg, it looked like they would. So I was watching back the highlights. They won the first leg um, 4-2. 
importantly 4-2. Um, and Real Madrid absolutely battered them. It could have been eight, right? If Liverpool... if I don't know where that came from. If Real Madrid had been able to finish, this game would have been done in the first tie. But it wasn't to be. In the first tie, um, Monaco took the lead with a Squillacci header. It's quite funny because I only remember him from his time at Arsenal and he was absolutely terrible for us. It was really weird (laughs) to see him in a good team. Um, Helguera equalized in the 51st minute. Zidane then scored. Figo then missed a penalty but managed to score the header. Ronaldo got another goal in the 81st minute, but Fernando Morientes against his parent team in the 83rd minute got a goal that everybody thought would be a consolation. And already the signs were there that Real Madrid should not have let Morientes go. So heading into the first time, Real Madrid were very confident. Monaco were a bit bereft of confidence. And I think... Monaco is a weird place to play football, right? Because nobody gives a shit about football in Monaco. It's like a really strange, small stadium. Yeah. Never seems to have many people there. But people then I was much watching... more about Formula One, right? Yeah, and just, you know, being on their yachts and other rich people things, uh, smoking cigars. I don't know. But so it always feels like there's never many people there either. But I was watching the highlights and this stadium was packed for this second leg, right? I think people, Real Madrid are in town. People are always going to turn up, right? They've got the so, money. They were just like, let's go. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the second leg, nobody is giving Monaco a prayer. And it starts quite badly. Um, Raul gives Real Madrid the lead on the 35th minute. There's a beautiful dummy from Guti, who I think is a very, very underrated player when people look back at that Real Madrid team. He never seems to get the headlines, but he was... a Fucking great player. But he plays a really great um, dummy for Raul, who with his left foot just curls the ball into the bottom corner to give Real Madrid a 5-2 lead. And people are thinking, okay, this game is definitely done. Throughout the first half, Monaco are definitely piling on the pressure. They're really attacking. They're definitely going for it. You know, nothing to lose. Fuck this. If we're going to go out, we're going to go out fighting. And in the 46th minute, so just as the referee is putting the whistle to his lips, Julie volleys a ball from the corner of the area to level the tie. And all of a sudden, the commentator is shouting, okay, now we've got a game. Now we have a game. And the second half, Monaco pick up exactly where they left off. And they are hammering Real Madrid. What I found really interesting was the body language between the Real Madrid players. Even from the beginning, they all seem to be like bickering and looking at each other and kind of arms in the air and losing their discipline. And there seemed to be something off that night, like they knew that Monaco were going to take it. But it's 1-1 and we're heading into the 47th minute. So only two minutes into the second half. And that man again, Morientes, comes back and bites his parent team in the ass as Evra puts in a beautiful cross from deep, like genuinely an unbelievable ball. And Morientes' little looping header leaves Casillas planted to the spot. And all of a sudden, Monaco are only one goal away from going through. And it's all looking very nervy for Florentino Perez. In the highlights, the camera kept cutting back to him and it was just him and his wife like throwing their arms in the air and like punching and like the next to the the Prince of Monaco who's just trying not to over-celebrate is really quite entertaining. (laughs) Two very different approaches to the game. It was always good to see Florentino Perez pissed off, I think. But it looks like maybe Real Madrid are going to see it out. 
But then in the 65th minute, Julie scores a beautiful back heel that goes through the legs of the Real Madrid defender and the place goes insane. All of a sudden, Monaco are going through. And that's how the game would end. 5-5 on aggregate, but Monaco go through thanks to the two away goals that they scored at the Bernabeu. And this was a huge upset concerning that everybody was just waiting for the Galacticos to, you know, steamroll through the table and eventually snatch the Champions League. But guess what? They never did. I, I, I just think the, 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 the amazing thing for me from this was the, the whole Morientes deal is mad. The fact that they lent him to, to Monaco and didn't say he can't play against us um, seems absolutely mental. I think there's a few Premier League teams that have suffered from this decision as well. So they're definitely not the only ones. But at the end of the game... Raul had a goal disallowed that was offside, but I would say it's a modern offside, right? He's like, his armpit is offside. It's really, really close. That could have changed the game, but it went the home team's way. They went through, and in the end, it could have been even more comfortable for Monaco as they hit the post twice. Like this game, I cannot tell you how attacking this game was. Both teams were just taking shots from anywhere. It was like, I just watched the highlights, but I'm tempted to go back and watch the full game again because it looked like an absolute banger. And Monaco would beat Chelsea in the semi-final with a 5-3 aggregate, and eventually they would get to the final against Jose Mourinho's Porto, who would win 3-0 and make it two Champions Leagues in their history. And as Rory said, that was the year that Mourinho really made a name for himself. Mm-mm-mm. Manchester United, have, uh, AC Milan have just scored against Manchester United. Simon Kjaer in the 90 plus two minutes. Apparently Henderson has dropped an absolute clangor. United cannot buy goalkeepers. I'm receiving texts from AC Milan France who said that AC Milan absolutely battered Man U for 90 minutes. And in the first half, there were two goals disallowed and they were very doubtful. But at the same time, Ajax win 3-0 to Young Boys thanks to goals by Klassen, Tadic and Barabi. Villarreal 2-0 against Dinamo Kiev. Menu Milan 1-1 and Slavia Prague Rangers 1-1. Not bad for a team who was suffering a mad hangover, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, we, I, I'm pretty sure they were. But we need to get back to the weekly topic. Sorry, guys, we're back in. And we are staying in the 0304 season. Where are you taking us, Tommy? So right around the time that Real Madrid and Monaco were playing this insane set of fixtures, AC Milan, who had defeated Sparta Prague in the round of 16, got ready to face Deportivo La Coruña, the big-time surprise package of this Champions League, as they had beat Juventus 2-0 on aggregate in the round of 16. So just for a bit of context, Juventus were the Italian champions at the time and uh, Deportivo La Coruña, who had finished their season third in La Liga, they defeated them with no big issues. So both games a clean sheet, both games a goal, and they advanced to the quarterfinals. Now, where was Barcelona in all this? We talked about Real Madrid, we talked about Deportivo La Coruña, but for our younger listeners, I grew up in a time where Barcelona were mainly playing the UEFA Cup. They were not in the Champions League that much. And I think it would be interesting to see where the Barcelona team with Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, and all those players that we know, where that Barcelona team came from. And it feels like 
they kind of got lucky with their cantera uh, for this for this uh, generation of players because before then Barcelona were not in the Champions League that much. And so Deportivo La Coruña had finished the third behind Real Sociedad and Real Madrid, who were the Spanish champions. And now they get ready to face AC Milan. Now, AC Milan had finished the season third in the, in the Serie A. And they were, however, one of the best teams in Europe. So how do they line up to face Deportivo La Coruña in the first leg at San Siro? Get ready, because just like the, the lineup that Roy read for Real Madrid, there are quite some intense names here too. Dida in goal. Four-man defense with Kfu, Paolo Maldini, Giuseppe Pancaro and Alessandro Costa Curta. At midfield, Gennaro Gattuso, Clarence Edorf and Andrea Pirlo. Kaká behind Shevchenko and Filippo Inzaghi. Now, surprisingly, there is not any name in the Deportiva La Coruña team that I would remember. So none of these players have really made it big. Rory? I think Roy Mackay is in this team, right? The striker who we've talked about. And you and didn't know who he was. He was I'm not. sure he's... No? Oh, maybe it's too early for him. Damn it. So the, their lineup at the San Siro was Molina, Naibet, Andrade, Capdevila. Capdevila, actually, is yeah. one name that, that I do remember. Mauro Silva, Sergio, Lionel Scaloni, Valeron, Aldo Duscher, Walter Panidiani, and Luque. Being... Now, Pandiani, a few of them have done some time in the Premier League. Pandiani, I remember. Scaloni, I feel, did some time at West Ham. There's a few I know there, but Pandiani was a great striker. I want to say Argentinian. I'm not sure. And right off the bat, Pandiani scores 1-0 for Deportivo La Coruña in the San Siro. The fans cannot believe it. This is at the 12th minute, and it takes AC Milan an entire half to come back thanks to a beautiful old-school Ricardo Kaká goal. Mm -hmm. A little control with the left thigh, and then beam with the right foot on the bottom corner to make it 1-1. AC Milan come in the into the second half with a completely different mindset. They know that they've got the quality to overturn the score. Giuseppe Pancaro assist, Andriy Shevchenko goal, and what a goal that was. Andriy Shevchenko, maybe one of my favorite number nines of all time. He manages to go past one defender, creates a space, and just hammers it in. It feels like there is really not much to do for Deportivo La Coruña because four minutes later, Kaká makes it a brace with a great right foot shot and at the 52nd minute, Andrea Pirlo with a textbook free kick to make it 4-1 and that is the final result after the first leg. So it feels like Things are fine for AC Milan. There was a little scare at the beginning, but then they managed to snatch the result back. But two weeks later, they have to travel to Spain, where, once again, it takes Walter Panidiani five minutes to make it 1-0. And now, the thing that really, I don't know, it made it feel like some very distant moment in time about these highlights is to see the fans in the stadium, to see how crucial the away goal rule is in the Champions League when fans are there. Because AC Milan, who were by far the better team, they walk into a stadium that is just filled with people screaming and shouting and feeling very confident. And they have every right to be. Because at the end, 
at the end of the first half, they are already 3-0 up against one of the best and most complete teams in the world, AC Milan. Now, 3-0 up against AC Milan. AC Milan have won the first leg 4-1. So AC Milan, everything they need is one goal to still be alive. Mm-hmm. But Deportivo La Coruña make it 4-0. Thanks to Fran at the 76th minute and the legendary Ancelotti side that would go on to play multiple Champions League finals goes out against the Minos Deportivo La Coruña. Deportivo La Coruña, unfortunately, they would be eliminated in the semifinal against Mourinho's Porto. And what a run that Porto had. Manchester United, Lyon, Deportivo La Coruña, and finally Monaco. That was a very impressive Champions League run. That was that that Champions League year. That Champions League year was crazy. Like I will never be able to look back at it fondly because for me that's the year Arsenal should have won it. We got knocked out by Chelsea in the semi-finals. I think it was that year, right? And it's fucking brutal. Um or was that was that a different year? And that was year. the same year that uh, Arsenal absolutely battered Inter Milan at the San It Diego. was, yeah. I can never look back at that series. But that, that season, I was looking back. You're right. The crowds made me really miss the fact that we can't be in stadiums. And more of that later when we get onto the other ties we talk about. But um, people forget how good Deportivo were. And it's such a shame to see them now. I think they're in the Secunda in Spain. I don't think they're in La Liga anymore. Like it's really sad to see the drop off. They had a few years where they were a really good side. I remember them beating Manchester United one year, like Walter Pandiani, Roy Mackay, um, the striker whose name I still can't remember, the Argentinian guy. They had some really good players there, and it's a shame to see them where they are. You could say the same about Marseille, about uh, Monaco. Really, they've never quite hit those heights again. Um, and Porto. So it was a bit of a like standout season for these like smaller teams. Will we see it again? I'm not sure if we ever will. Um, I'm not sure, but I was just checking. Where was Inter Milan? We had finished the second in the league the previous year. Well, we didn't make it past the Group B with Arsenal, Lokomotiv Moscow, and Dynamo Kiev. Very Inter-like. Some things never change, but let's take a leap forward and let's travel to the 2011-2012 UEFA Champions League. Now, the game that I want to talk to you about is Napoli-Chelsea. And it went down in history as one of the very few results that I had guessed before kickoff. A friend called me and he said, man, I'm about to make a bet. Napoli-Chelsea, what do you think will be the score? And I was like, well, Chelsea are a sick team, so they're going to score a goal. But Napoli, I feel like with the crowd at the San Paolo and Mm -hmm. everything, it was like, dude, I got bad money. I was like, right, 3-1. And the final result was exactly 3-1 for Napoli. So my friend made money. Guess who didn't? Me, because I didn't (laughs) bet, nor do I right now. To this day, that's the only exact result that I have. (laughs) So, yeah. What were these Napoli and the Chelsea teams? So Napoli had finished the previous season third in the league after Inter Milan. And this was the beginning of, you know, Napoli really making statements in Mm -hmm. Italy and in Europe too. And in fact, the following year, they qualified to the round of 16. Now, this was the beginning of Mazzarri's Napoli. Mazzarri, uh, who could count on players like Lavezzi, Cavani, Hamsik. Mm -hmm. 
all those people, Campagnaro in defense, De Sanctis in goal. It was a big-time throwback team, and they managed to win the first leg against Chelsea. Now, Chelsea, in their first leg at Napoli, they lined up with Czech in goal, Ivanovic, Cahill, David Luiz, and Buzingua. Remember that name? Jose Buzingua, the unibrow. I always remember he had one eyebrow. Exactly. In defense, then in midfield, we had Ramirez, Raur Meireles, and Maluda. And in attack, Mata, Drogba, and Sturridge. He was starting for Chelsea, while Napoli lined up with a 3-4-2-1 with De Sanctis in goal, four-man defense with Campagnaro, Cannavaro, the brother of Fabio, Aronica, and then they had Maggio, Gargano, Inler, Zuniga, Hamsik, Lavezzi, and Cavani. Now, the, f- the lead was taken by Chelsea, thanks to a Mata goal, who was very clinical in front of the Sanctis. It was a bad play from Napoli's defense, and he managed to make it 1-0. Crucial away goal, because the opposition was looking intimidating. But at the 38th minute, Ezekiel Lavezzi, one of the most overlooked players of the past decade, mm. in my opinion, he scores an absolute beauty. He curls it from outside the box to the bottom left corner of the goal. And Czech, at the time, one of the best goalkeepers in the world, cannot do anything. He dives, but he doesn't save. And then at the 47th minute of the first half, Cavani makes it 2-1 for Napoli. Napoli would end up winning the game thanks to a second Lavezzi goal at the 20th minute of the second half. Now, imagine being a Napoli fan there. Napoli, just because they were playing Chelsea, who were, you know, a big name, a big powerhouse, Abramovich's money, they've got a reputation. This was a huge win for a team that in Serie A hadn't accomplished much for a long-ass time. Arguably, ever since Marcelo, uh, Maradona had mm-hmm. left to go to Sevilla. So this was a huge, huge game, but they still had to play the second leg at Stamford Bridge. And for that second leg, it felt like Chelsea were really, really on a mission. Now, the lineups didn't change much. Isian Lampard at Sturridge for uh, Chelsea, just like Mata, Ramirez, and Drogba up front. And same thing, Napoli don't make any big changes. Now, I remember this game because I really, really wanted Napoli to advance. But when I saw Stamford Bridge, I don't know, they, they say it about Anfield on a Champions League night. But I will tell you that Stamford Bridge, I remember also the Inter Milan win in 2010 with that 8 0 goal. Maybe it's the proximity of the fans to the pitch, but it did look like it was teeming with people, a very intimidating side for Mazzari's side. Yeah, I remember watching that game. I think I was in Spain at this point, and I was with a nominal Chelsea fan. Um, I enjoyed it massively. But yeah, the, you're right. That night, it felt like the atmosphere in the stadium was absolutely like red hot. It felt like it was really ready, like the game was ready to explode, and it definitely did. But quickly on Lavezzi, you're right about him being underrated. He was all work ethic, but massively talented technically as well. That guy... If he hadn't have gone to Chelsea so early, I think uh, to Chelsea to China so early, I think his reputation would be a lot higher and where it should be, really. Definitely. Let's not forget that that year Napoli were in Group A and they managed to squeeze their way through with 11 points. They were second in the group after Bayern and they knocked 
Manchester City out of the Champions League, while Chelsea, they qualified in a group with Bayer Leverkusen, Valencia and Genk. So now here we are still at the round of 16, big game. Napoli have got a 3-1 advantage after the first leg. We go to Stamford Bridge, but things seem to be going quite downhill for Napoli after 28 minutes, Drogba makes it 1-0. The second half starts and there is a beautiful header by Terry to make it 2-0. And at the 30th minute of the second half, very unlucky handball for Napoli. Cool as you like, Frankie Lampard from the penalty spot, he makes it 3-0. Sorry, he makes it actually 3-1 because sorry, mm-hmm. my notes were messed up because Gokan Inler for Napoli had made it 2-1 at the... 10th minute of the second half. So imagine 1-0, 2-0, 2-1, 3-1. At this point, they need to go to overtime. And at that point, there was a bit of a feeling that things weren't going quite right for Napoli. They are going to penalties almost, but not really, because at the 15th minute of the first extra time, Ivanovic, who is one of my favorite Premier League defenders of all time, just hammers it in to make it 4-1. Napoli cannot come back and Chelsea overturn a score that I don't know if many people believe that they could overturn. And that season, they would go on to win their very first Champions League in their history, as Rory remembers very well. Yeah, this is one of the things we've talked about it before. Sometimes when you win these things, you need these ties to go that way, right? You need the unlikely player to just pop up and get his one goal of the season. Ivanovic, to be fair to him, always popped up with a few, and he was a very, very reliable defender. I do like Ivanovic. Um, I felt very Yeah, I remember that that tie. I was really disappointed that Napoli went out and quite angry that Chelsea went through. But it was a great performance, two great games, and yeah, a proper like iconic... Champions League night and that that Napoli team I really enjoyed that Napoli team they had some yeah. great players Hamsik oh what a player Hamsik Lavezzi Cavani they called them the three tenors the three yeah. tenors, and <laughs> three the, tenors. Were, yeah, yeah yeah three tenors and they were performing in every single game too bad they didn't manage to score just one extra goal in that tie because they would have gone on to play Benfica and who knows oh. how history would have changed. Rory, which one is our last comeback that you decided to talk about today? Now, this one will be fresh in people's memories, I think, or freshish in people's memories. It's nowhere near as far back as 0304. We are going to what I'm going to call the beginning of the Barcelona wobbly years. So this is, we've gone back to um, 11... No, 1718, and it is Roma versus Barcelona. Now, this is, I'm going to quickly take you through the Barcelona team. So, in the squad, you had Testegen, Iniesta, Suarez, Messi. They just brought in Dembele and Coutinho. They'd sold Neymar and Arda Turan and Mascarano. So, it was a bit of a transition year, and they were managed by Valverde. This team would go on to win La Liga by 14 points and would win the Copa del Rey, beating Sevilla 5-0 in the final. So this was a peak Barcelona team at its, not at its height, but definitely at a strong point. As for Roma, 
Their squad included Allison, Kolarov, who they brought in that year from Man City, Manolas, De Rossi, Strootman, when he was good before the injuries, Nangolan, Dzeko. They brought in Patrick Schick and Cengiz Under. But they'd had quite a few players leave. So Salah had left for Liverpool, Chesney left for Juve, Totti retired and Rudiger went to Chelsea. So two big summers of change for both these teams headed into the season. As for Roma's Serie A performance, they would finish way behind the leaders in third, 14 points behind Napoli in second and 18 points off Juve in first. So not really part of the title challenge, but, you know, third Champions League football the next year, a good season all around. And at this point, they were managed by Di Francesco, a manager who I still like purely for the game we're about to talk about. I'm sure he did nothing else right, but this game was unbelievable. So first leg is in Barcelona. But quickly, before we do that, we need to do the group stages, right? In the group stage, Roma had been drawn with Chelsea, Atletico, and Carabag. Now, Roma went through top ahead of Chelsea, and Atletico finished third. Roma beat Chelsea 3-0 at home and drew 3-3 at Stamford Bridge. So they had a really good campaign in the group stage. Um, the goals against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, two for El Shirawi, one for Perotti. And Dzeko got eight goals in total in the Champions League this season, both him and Alisson being voted in squad of the year. As for Barcelona, in their group, they were drawn with Juventus, Sporting and Olympiacos. This group was fairly straightforward for Barcelona, but their standout result was a 3-0 win at the Camp Nou over Juventus. Two goals from that man, Messi, and Ivan Rakitic. So both of these teams going through. In the round of 16, Roma would face Shakhtar. They would finish 2-2 on aggregate, Roma going through on away goals. And Barcelona in the last 16, they beat Chelsea 4-1 on aggregate, Messi scoring three goals over the two legs. So this lined up the quarterfinal four. Il Giallorossi and Il Giallorossi yeah. Gialo and the Blaugrana. I can't remember what it is in Spanish. So the quarterfinals, the first round, the first leg is at the Camp Nou, and Barcelona absolutely stroll it. And Roma really don't help themselves. So the the, the scoring is opened by an own goal from De Rossi, where he seems to want to slide tackle the ball out of the pitch, but instead just tucks it into the bottom corner. That is then followed up by a really unlucky own goal by Manolas. Remember both of these names, De Rossi and Manolas. But Manolas scores another own goal as the ball bounces off the post, hits him in the face and goes past Allison in the Roma goal. And at this point, it really looks like Barcelona are going to be home and dry. But Dzeko manages to get a late consolation after PK adds a third and Suarez then adds a fourth to see... Barcelona through to the semi-finals. At this point, we're thinking, okay, unlucky Roma. You've, you know, this is about where you get to, but usually you get embarrassed out of the competition. We all remember when Manchester United absolutely embarrassed them, right? They never really tend to get that far. But this year was different. And in the second leg, Roma have an absolute... I think this was like the, potentially this squad at its peak. I think this was its 
peak performance i don't know what you think tommy but now this was a very funny it's a very funny memory for me because at the time when they played the return leg i was in um, i was doing a seven day track in uh, southern uh, chile in patagonia i was with this italian guy and we had been not using the internet nor showering for that matter <laughs> like just walking and moving from campsite to campsite in this beautiful wilderness and then you know we were wondering the whole time you know the champions league you know is on the Serie A is on he's a big football fan too juventus fan unfortunately but the last day we eventually get we see signs of human life and there is this kind of like nice hotel and we arrive all dirty and stuff and we're like look man can we just like sit here and wait for the bus that will take us back home and they're like, yeah, sure. And then we're like, can we use the computer? And they're like, yeah, what do you need to check? Just football scores. And when we see the result of Roma against Barcelona, we said, no, man, this is, can we refresh the page? And so like <laughs> mad, we started refreshing. We're like, dude, it's true. Roma has made it. But I like you, I let you talk about it. So this leg, now I really like a lot of the players in this Roma team. So there was players like Nine Galan, right? I love De Rossi. Um, Kolarov was great for them. Like, there's a lot of players here that you could like, um, Allison as well. But anyway, in the second leg, Roma are just going for it, and they managed to have Nangalan back in the squad for the second leg in key. And they start with an attacking lineup with both Jekko and Schick up front in a kind of fuck it, let's just go for it move, right? And it all starts incredibly well in the sixth minute. Jekko volleys a long ball right past Tesh Stegen in goal into the bottom corner. And the commentator is getting excited. He's, now then, now we have a goal. Now we have a goal. One of the things that sticks in my mind about this game is Peter Drury's commentary was unbelievable. I will be quoting more of it later. But a great start for Roma. 1-0 in the sixth minute. It takes them a little bit longer to get their second. But throughout the first half, beginning of the second half, they really are the better team. Barcelona just, just look lost. But De Rossi gets the chance to put right his own goal in the Camp Nou as he tucks away a penalty in the 58th minute. And now all of a sudden, Roma just need one goal to go through. And what you're thinking at this point is, Nainggolan has a, has a chance that he should have scored. De Rossi has a chance that he definitely should have scored. Manolas has a chance. Kolarov has a chance. And every time it comes, you think, Oh, that was the chance. That was the chance for them to get in it. That was the chance. But in the 81st minute, they have a corner. It's swung in and Manolas just glances the header. It goes across the goalkeeper into the far post. And all of a sudden, Roma are going through. Now, the commentary from Peter Drury is unbelievable. I, think I remember it. The Greek god, the savior, exactly. the emperors, something like Roma that. Roma have risen from their ruins. Manolas, the Greek god in Rome, the unthinkable unfolds before our eyes. Now, Manolas' reaction is unbelievable. He looks like he's possessed. He just runs into the crowd, like shaking his hands, like this death stare into the crowd as everyone just swamps him. There's still 10 minutes left of the game, but you could see at that point that Barcelona were done. Mentally, they were done from the sixth minute. Like Roman knew that they say, we've done it, we've done it. And that is one of the first videos I remember, you know, when like the meme started of people putting the Titanic music over goal, yeah, over goals. Time. Right, it was one of the first things I saw, and it's still one of my favorite football videos because I think this is the peak goal for that Titanic music, which makes every football moment better. It's just beautiful, and Manolas is 
reaction, the commentary, fantastic. In the semi-final, Roma were actually really unlucky against Liverpool. They went out 7-6 on aggregate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very unlucky. And I remember that when I was watching that game against Liverpool, I was like, how how arrogant are Liverpool to start Karius in goal? Somebody might have heard him, be, heard me because that summer they snatched Alisson from Roma and he became their goalkeeper. And, still and this was, of course, the first year of Salah being at, at Liverpool and against his old team. He scores two goals at Anfield. It's just, it was so, like, so close for Roma. 7-6 on aggregate. And you have to think, okay, maybe... It didn't end well for the manager. Things turned sour. But for that while, they were playing really good attacking football and attractive football. I think for a while it was going well for Di Francesco. And this is his, like, it will be when people think of his managerial reign, this is the moment they'll remember, right? That man last goal. And regular listeners of the show know I have a very soft spot for Roma. So I really enjoyed this game. So Deportivo La Coruña, AC Milan, 2003-2004. Monaco, Bayern, uh, sorry, Monaco, Real Madrid, always the same season, 2003, 2004, 2011, 2012, we had the Chelsea versus Napoli, and we just told you the story of Roma, Barcelona, one of the many remontadas that Barcelona had to suffer ever since beating PSG 6-1 at home. It feels like they made a pact with the devil, and the devil was like, guys, I want each of those goals back. So, yeah, kind of a... what was the? I wanted to do a literary quote, but I don't remember the name of the oh. book. What's the, the the? Oh my God, Dorian Gray, a very okay. Dorian wow, Gray right, go yeah, yeah. Type scenario for Barcelona, mm. but all of these games that we have mentioned, guys, go on YouTube, pop open a beer, and they're all a pleasure to watch. And the AC Milan Deportivo game, just like Rory was saying about the Monaco Real Madrid, such intense offensive football. Mm-hmm. Shots coming from every corner. So much talent on the pitch, but the big boys didn't make it. So hopefully, Luis Suarez, Diego Pablo Simeone, Gasperini, Zapata, Ilicic, they were listening to this pod so that they will have some extra motivation going into next week's fixtures, looking for a comeback, but we're running out of time. And it's now time to give you the answer to the Who Am I quiz. And here we are for the final part of our show. Thank you for being with us until now. But don't leave just quiet because it's the time for the Who Am I quiz answer. Rory, you're currently watching Arsenal. How is it looking? Uh-oh, no. Oh, 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 defender just passed it straight to the striker, but thankfully he hit it straight at the keeper. We've actually been the better side so far, I would say. Had a few chances. David Luiz has had his customary pointless long shot free kick that went nowhere but we have had we've hit the crossbar i've had a few chances but starting to worry a little bit they look dangerous on the break the greeks we are talking europa league very quickly all the games that are being played right now granada molde olympiacos arsenal roma shakhtar donetsk and tottenham zagreb are all nil nil but it's time to remind our listeners and rory himself about the hints for the who am i quiz And here we go. So let me find them. Here they are. The club I've played for the shortest is Leicester City in England. 
players that I've played with in chronological order, Sinisa Mihailovic, Juan Sebastian Veron, and Robbie Savage, crew Alexandra legend. <laughs> yes. Team caps and goals, I've got 36 caps and only four goals, but my total career tally tells a different story. I've bagged it 205 times. Rory, how are you feeling? I felt like I knew which player it was, but then the Robbie Savage has thrown me out on chronological order, so I'm not confident <laughs> at all. You're not but confident we will see. Anymore? All right. Well, you've got three questions to ask me, good old Rory. Which one is your first one? Okay. Am I European? Yes, I am. You have to ask, are you? Oh, wait, are you? God's sake, we, we will get the hang of this by the time <laughs> we go to a different game. Um... So you are European. Okay, well, that's definitely the player I was thinking of out the window. Roma have just scored 1-0. Not sure who scored, but it just came up on my phone. 1-0. Um, okay, you are European. Are you a midfielder? No, I'm not a midfielder. Okay. Did you play for... Blackburn? No, I never uh, played Blackburn. So there you go. I'm European. I've never played for Blackburn, and I'm not a midfielder. You have run out of questions. It's just time to start guessing. I've absolutely shagged this. Um, Okay, let's have a think. Um, well, it's going to be a striker with 200-odd goals in your career. It's definitely not going to be a defender. So, strikers that played in Italy and Leicester. Oh, wait. Mancini. Fuck you. You got it. Yes! <laughs> yes! That is correct. It doesn't make great interaction for our listeners. But I actually, when I when I researched the player, I was like, he's going to guess it in no time. Then you sort of confused yourself with your own hands, which is the beautiful part of this game. Yeah. But eventually you guessed it. So do you know the reason why Mancini has got such few international caps? Now, this is because the manager at the time would have been Saki? Uh, well, Saki never called him up, really. Um, I would okay. have to check, but a few times only, maybe. Well, I thought he fell out with Saki, and that's why he never got a call. It was, up, eh? it was actually Berzot, so Mancini, ah, okay. who, is now, who is now the, the the manager for the Italian national team, he was an incredible ta uh, talent. He was an incredible striker. He wrote the history pages for both Sampdoria and Lazio. But the problem is that he was a bit of a Balotelli, and that's maybe mm. the reason why he got on so well with Balotelli and sort of brought him up at Inter Milan. Because I, I believe that he felt like Balotelli was not that different from the type of person that he was when he was a, a star boy, a teenager who he debuted in Serie A at 15 years of age, I believe. But he never quite had the brain. Uh, and uh, when they were, at the end of the 80s, they were touring the United States in the summer with the Italian national team. And Mancini got back home super late, at like five in the morning, kind of tipsy. And uh, the manager did not accept it. And it was like, you can pack your bags. You're flying from New York to Milan to Rome tomorrow morning. 
Mancini did leave together with other players, but the difference between Mancini and the other players is that the other players all called up the manager and they apologized for what they had done. Mancini never, ever did. And Berzot, who was a man born in the early years of the, of the 20th century, was like, no, I cannot accept a behavior like this. Mm-hmm. All he do is pick up the phone, give me a phone call, say I'm sorry, and I will call him back. But he never did. And to this day, Mancini says that if there is one thing that he could change in his career, is exactly that. He said that everybody around him, his friends, his family, were like, dude, just apologize. And he said, no, I will never apologize. I don't feel like I'm wrong. It's his fault, not mine. And Mancini, who is now a way more reasonable man, says that if he could change one thing in his career, it would be... That one, Mancini. It's weird to think. It's weird to think of him like that because obviously I've only ever known him as a adult, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've, known, I've known him as a manager, a bit as a player, but to think of him as like a Balotelli type is yeah. Weird, but he gets right? so mad every time that somebody doesn't think the way he's a bit of a prima donna, Mancini. Really, mm. like I like him because we were born in the same city, because he coached the Inter Milan, because. He's a fun guy, I think. But at the same time, he gets very tense whenever somebody disagrees with him. But yeah, Mancini started at Bologna, made wrote history pages at Sampdoria, even played the Champions League final against Barcelona the year that I was born, and then went on to Lazio where he won a Scudetto and won half actually a year at Leicester before calling it a career. Rory, anything to tell our listeners before I send them off with our quote? Arsenal are very frustrating. Arsenal are very frustrating. And as the custom says, I'm going to say goodbye to you with a footballing quote. And this one is dedicated to Mr. Oliveira, Porto's hero, who managed to score a brace, but especially a very unlikely free kick. And this is the quote by David Beckham. As soon as a free kick is given and it's anywhere near the box, I get excited. I don't really concentrate what side the keeper is on because I always think that if I catch it as well as I can, then I can beat him whichever way he goes. This is for you, Oliveira, and we will talk to you on Monday night, Twitch Live at 9 p.m. Don't miss it.